The one who calls to the Lord says here at the end, Lord, in the safety that you grant me, I sleep in peace from cares released. That doesn't mean that there aren't any cares, but it's the Lord who grants sleep to those he loves. He grants peace to those who call out to him. He releases us from our cares. With that in mind, let's now turn to our scripture reading, Romans 3. Romans 3, and we'll be reading the verses 9 to 26, which you'll be able to find on page 1296 of your pew Bible. Here, uh, Paul has just been speaking, uh, he's been uh, showing a comparison between the Jews and the Greeks and talking about the benefit that the Jews receive of receiving the law. And he carries on in that vein in this verse. He says here, What then? Are we better than they? We being the Jews and they being the Greeks? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is, is, whose, mouth, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Word of God. Let's now together turn to Lord's Day 2. In Lord's Day 1, we spoke about the comfort that we can find in Jesus Christ in having Him as our only comfort in life and death because he's bought us with his blood. 
And then the question was asked, from where do we know, uh, what do we need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And there were three parts there. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to be thankful to God for this deliverance. So to understand the comfort of God, we're first called to look at our sin and misery, where we came from. And so we enter into that with Lord's Day 2. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when was the last time that you had an honest self-examination? When was the last time that you sat down, took a look at yourself, and, and considered who you really were? What you're capable of and why you do and don't do certain things. There are many people in this world whose only principle is, whether they realize it or not, whose only principle is that they go by what society thinks is good. They do what the crowd teaches them is okay to do, and they don't do them, they, they don't do what the crowd teaches them is not okay. You can see that already in the church nursery. The kid who takes away the toy from the other kid and who runs off to play with it himself, well, he's not going to get anyone else playing with him. It already begins there. And so he's taught by other kids not playing with him that it's not okay to do that kind of behavior. They do what the crowd teaches them is okay to do, and they're taught not to do what the crowd teaches them is not okay. The secular philosopher Nietzsche summed this idea up under the statement, morality is cowardice. Basically, he's saying here, you don't do what you might want to do, not because you're a moral person, but because you are afraid of what might happen to you if you do it. You've been trained to be afraid of the social cost. You don't do things which are wrong, not because you're interested in doing what is right, but because it's easier for you to keep doing what you're doing right now. That's the philosophy of Nietzsche. The way that this presents in some people is that they take what's immoral to the edge of what they can get away with without getting serious consequences. Take pornography, for example. Many people first get into it because they are pushing the boundaries of their sexuality. If someone's pushing the boundaries, they're not pure because they want to be pure and glorify God with their bodies. They're pure because they haven't had the opportunity to act out without consequence. They're also afraid of what will happen once they act out on their desires. But suddenly, they run across a website. They're curious, and they want to explore more, but they realize what they're doing is wrong. Now, that being said, that man or woman, or that boy or girl, 
weighs the costs of getting caught against the costs of acting out sinfully and figures, as long as no one finds out, I'll be okay. I can indulge. What they haven't realized yet is that they've taken the first step down a particular path. Their morality is no longer based on doing good or being good. You've gone from being obedient because you love God to being obedient because you're scared to be caught. Their morality has suddenly switched from being as bad, suddenly switched to being as bad as you can be without getting caught, or at least not getting into serious trouble. Now, for you, your particular sin might not be sexual in nature. Maybe you're more inclined towards anger or bitterness. Maybe you found that someone will back off if you lose your temper a tiny little bit. So it's convenient for you to just push the edges of your boundaries there, going beyond what's right. But not so much that there will be consequences or serious consequences for you personally. Maybe you're disobedient or disrespectful as much as you can get away with to parents to teachers in class, to those who are in authority over you. Maybe you waste time at work, just enough to satisfy yourself, but not so much that the boss notices. Maybe you drink more than you should, but as long as it's in hiding, you can get away with it. Maybe you like to smoke a joint or two, but as long as it's with people who are also okay with it, you're in the clear. Maybe you like to gossip. But as long as you can hide it under, it's only the truth, or I only wanted as many people as possible praying for this person, it's okay. You will push as far as you can without feeling the sting of consequence. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. Each of us has at least something that we struggle with in our lives. And when we overcome one thing, we realize there's another. And when we overcome that, we realize that there's another. Take a moment now to look on your life. Just a few seconds to see if there's anything that stands out to you where you push the boundaries. Anything that stands out to you where you push the boundaries, even a little bit. Is your morality what you see as right and wrong? The humanistic, the, the nihilistic, the um, worldly morality of Nietzsche? Is your morality in this area of your life, at the heart of it, just cowardice? What drives you to be obedient? Today, beloved, I want you to consider what the Catechism has to say and to honestly examine yourself in light of it. And I want you to come to recognize the two, our, our Catechism's two conclusions that come from this look into your own life and that come to this reflection on this passage today. I want to do this under the theme, a Christian's honest self-examination recognizes two realities. First, misery, an undeniable fact. And second, Grace, our need for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. You may have found it interesting as you were opening to Lord's Day 2 that 
this Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't question whether or not you're miserable. It assumes the fact. It assumes that you're miserable. And our Bible passage today presents this in a very vivid way. So let's take a look at that. We just read that both Jews and Greeks were under sin. Let's take a look at verse 10 following for a moment. In verse 10 and following, we read, There's no one righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouths is full of Mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Strong words. It seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? And yet we find this very same idea in our Lord's day today. From where do you know your sins and misery? Not do you have sins and misery, Not, have you felt miserable, but it's from where do you know your sins and misery? It assumes the fact in the same way that the Apostle Paul does. It says you are in a miserable state. You find yourself naturally in the same position as every single other human being on the planet. In fallenness, in misery. And the miserable guy loves to be better than the next person down the line. One pastor wrote last year, reflecting on Nietzsche's words, the fact is we like it when people fall, especially our enemies, especially the rich and famous. I knew there was something wrong with that guy. We might not have money and fame, but at least we got our morality, right? So we puff our chests around the water cooler with some good jokes, We pass the memes, pretend to be shocked, throw tomatoes, thump our chests. We throw a party when the big guys fall. But we probably feel pretty good when the little big guy in our community and even church falls too. I would never do that, we mutter. Yes, you would. You just don't have the guts, Nietzsche would retort. Of course, he uses this truth to make a case for the absurdity of good and evil. He rejects God. But his observation has merit in this. Jesus would probably agree as he obliterates anyone who considers herself or himself righteous in his sermons on the mount and on the plains. And yes, like this pastor notes, this is an especially clear reality in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever gone through it, you'll have noticed this. Matthew 5, verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. You have heard that it was said of old in verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he goes on, he doesn't just limit it to that, but he says it's also, be to, it's also possible, it is also possible to be false in the good things that you do. Matthew 6 verse 1. 
Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And then verse 16, When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus Christ had a habit of being able to point into the deepest reaches of someone's heart and say, there, you are imperfect, there. You fail the law, there. And you find yourself in a miserable state, there. And the strongest of ideas is reflected in the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. Boys and girls, do you know why Jesus gave this summary of the law? Do you know why Jesus gave this summary of the law? There were different groups of people who were coming to him and they had an argument about which commandment was more important. There were some who were focused on obeying at all costs and others who focused more on love or on other things and saw some commandments as less important because of that. The one who came to him and asked him was one of the strict ones. He was a Pharisee. And he wanted to know which is the greatest commandment, which is the most important is Jesus going to help one side or the other in his argument? Is he going to go with the people who are really strict? Or is he going to the people who are not, who let everything go? You can find people like that in the world today, can't you? Those who are really strict and those who aren't strict at all. Those who think that it's all about the rules and if you follow the rules, you'll turn out okay. Or those who focus so much on love and grace that they don't focus on anything else at all. But what does Jesus say to these people? What, what does Jesus say to these people? He says to him, you don't understand the law at all. You are making some commandments more important or less important because you think that obeying the commands is going to save you. You think that doing exactly what God says to the very letter is going to make you right with God. And if you slip up, as long as you, you care enough, as long as you meant well or obeyed the more important commandments, it'll all be okay in the end. Jesus instead says, you don't understand at all. The law doesn't fix you. The law doesn't save you. The law condemns you. The law doesn't fix you. The law doesn't save you. And it's not meant to. The law condemns you. He says, even if you obey the law on the outside, God knows your heart. God knows if you're just being obedient because you're scared you'll be caught. Or if you're obedient because you love Him. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. If you love your neighbor, you'll look out for them in every possible way and not want to sin against her or to hurt him, even if that person is the one you dislike the most in this world. Ask yourself that for a moment. This person that I dislike the most, do I truly, deeply love that person? Not in the sense of romantic love, but in the sense of a genuine caring. Do I love that person? That is what makes love for God the greatest commandment and love for your neighbor as something that comes out of that love for God. If we look at the law piece by piece, breaking it up into chunks and and putting one as more important than the other, we don't do so badly in the light of that, do we? Just taking one commandment at a time and looking at it separately from the rest. But if we look at the law in its demanding unity, as Jesus Christ described, that, that perfect depth of love, our misery becomes an undeniable fact. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying here in verse 20. Therefore, Romans 3 verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. The law exposes our sin. Our catechism is trying to make us come to terms with that. And it's trying to bring us to a place where we accept that as something that is real. If we come to terms that a part of our soul, as it were, is in its natural state grounded in hell. That our sinful nature makes us capable of immense evil. We'll be able to begin looking beyond ourselves. We'll be able to put aside our own self-righteousness and look beyond our righteousness. One prominent psychologist noted that soldiers who develop post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, soldiers who develop post-traumatic stress disorder frequently develop it not because of something they saw, but because of something they did. Now that isn't always the case, but it's enough to be noticeable. Interesting, isn't it? Many people who commit atrocities, who aid in war crimes, who help in death camps, would never have dreamed that they would be capable of doing such a thing. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to participate in genocide. But then they do it. And they're horrified to have found themselves capable of it. And that single realization destroys them. Gives them nightmares for years on end. That single piece of human nature which allowed them to do it is what dwells in the natural man, the soul of every single human being on this planet. And what does the Catechism say to that? You find your ability to do terrible things surprising? 
I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. This isn't to say that I actually will hate God and my neighbor all of the time in the same way and in the same intensity. No, not at all. But it means that I'm inclined to do so. And that many times we act on this inclination too. That's why the Spirit of Christ teaches us in 1 John 1 verse 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. Because this inclination is in the sinful nature of each and every single human being on this planet. Lift society's barriers like a soldier in a wartime situation where people around us are committing atrocities and the enemy has done horrible things to our side and then what are we capable of? We already act out the seeds of it in our day-to-day lives. Will we still perfectly fulfill God's law and live a life of perfect love? Or will we find that of ourselves we're just like every single other human being on the planet? You see, many people see Jesus' love, Jesus' law of love as a softening of the commands. They see it as a way in which we can become more tolerant of those who are around us and more accepting of even those who are deliberately living in unrepentant sin. But if we truly look at this, we can see that Jesus is not doing this Pharisee a kindness in Matthew 22 by summarizing the law in this way. He's not doing him a kindness. Instead, he's dealing a devastating blow to his righteousness and the righteousness of every single individual there and every single one of us here today. And Paul recognizes this. That's why he says in verse 19 of our passage, Romans 3, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world held guilty before God. You won't recognize this if you haven't examined yourself and discovered your inclination towards great evil. You won't see how you're already nurturing those seeds of evil within you that could spring up into poisonous vines either. You won't see it if you keep yourself in a bubble where you're a pretty good person by your own account and by your friend's account and refuse to hold yourself up to the mirror that's the law and that terrifying, immovable standard that is Jesus' absolute command of total, untainted love. Do you see yourself as you truly are? Do you see the darkness that dwells in natural man? in your sinful nature. Every mouth stopped, Paul says. All the world held accountable. Having embraced your misery as an undeniable fact, do you see the profound truth that Paul is giving us here? The law of God, the law of love, all that does no more than make sure that your mouth will be stopped. It cannot be something that you can force yourself to hold perfectly as much as you try to make yourself the dictator of your own soul. But when you recognize your sinful nature and you hold its darkness up to the light of God's word, something marvelous happens. You begin to see where you're deceiving yourself. 
You begin to see where you've only been following out of fear and not out of love. Your questions no longer become, how much can I get away with and how far is too far? But how have I missed this attitude in my life for so long? How long have I been skirting on the edge of sin with my only barrier being fear of what other people will think? Your mouth will be stopped. You'll be held guilty before God, and it will be a good thing. But how can it be a good thing, you might ask? You just took the law of love and made it terrifying for me. You just stripped anything good I felt about me being moral or righteous, and you took that away. How can that be good? It is good because then we can come before God with the realization, Lord, my mouth is stopped. I have no excuses. I have only willful blindness, and I bring you nothing but my sin. And Lord, Lord, I need you. I need you. I so desperately need you, and I can't do it without you. This is the position that Jesus wants to bring us to. He wants our burdens to drive us to our knees in prayer, to weigh us down until we are bowed down at the foot of the cross. Then we'll be looking beyond ourselves. We'll be looking beyond our attempts, our, our trying to look pretty good in light of the law, and we'll seek righteousness outside of ourselves. So where does that leave us in relation to the law after this has occurred? The law, which was before Christ a threat to us, exposed our sin, and it exposed the fact that we are deserving of death. And it's concerning this aspect of the law that we find the former slave trader John Bunyan writing, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. And we find him confessing far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law commanded, but we were dead in sin. We couldn't measure up. The law said do and do, but we could not. How could we possibly measure up to what God required? But in answer to this question, the gospel brings us beyond the law. Look at verse 21 of our passage. Look at verse 21 there. It says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. He does confess there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we see in verse 24, all have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation, as, as, a, as an offering of atonement, a, a sin offering by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to show at this present time his righteousness that he might be just. He might be just, but also that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus what do we see here? 
Because of Christ, God can still be just. And it's a good thing that He's a just God. He still punishes mankind for the sins which have been committed. And He punishes sin through the person of Jesus Christ. He becomes just, the one who punishes sin, but also the justifier, because Jesus Christ bears the weight of that sin and makes us righteous before God. So what we see here is is a chance to come clean in recognizing our misery, a chance to accept personal responsibility for what we do, a chance to make real amends, to begin to make real amends. And we do so knowing that what we have done has very real consequences and knowing we're not getting off scot-free for them. But we know that we won't be destroyed by them either. We won't get off scot-free because our older brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, is paying the price for them. We won't get off scot-free because the one who shares in our human nature has borne the weight. And we respond with working. Not working because we need to earn salvation. Christ has already paid for everything. But working out of a response of love for God and our neighbor. Working to alleviate the suffering of those who are around us and the suffering of those we've impacted to the best of our ability. And to direct them to Christ in everything. Because that's what Christ did for us. And that's what Christ wants from us. And in a flash, in an instant, that terrible, immovable law of love is changed into a beautiful thing. Because in Christ, it's no longer a standard that we can never measure up to. But it becomes a response to what Christ has done. A very wise young man uh, said to me this past week, God looks down, and what does he see? The answer to that for so many is he sees a miserable sinner. But is that the right answer? God looks down and what does he see? He sees someone washed white as snow. That's a beautiful confession. It's a beautiful confession. And that's what it should be. It should be, first of all, a declaration of what Jesus has done for us. And then a thankful response. A thankful response. That is the moment in which the law bids us fly and gives us wings. It's absolutely amazing. Nothing we have done and nothing we could have done could have caused us to deserve it. And yet, God grants it to us as a free gift. A free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. As we see in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the glorious, glorious conclusion of your discovery of yourself in in view of the eyes of God. You no longer need be terrified of God. Looking at your sin, you, you strive to put it away because God is good and because He doesn't deserve your sin. 
But you don't just remain there. You begin a journey of being rewired by the power of the Spirit, by finding your identity in Christ, creating new pathways in your mind and in your life, not just being content to receive that gift and, and bury it, doing nothing with it, but making it multiply for, the bene for your benefit and for the benefit of those who are around you. And what this looks like, well, the remainder of the catechism is devoted to that. Now, if, if you were left to this yourself, it would feel like an overwhelming burden. It would be more than you could handle when you're facing the law. But you have a spirit who has given you, a spirit who will guide you in this journey of transformation, this journey of recognizing your own deepest darkness and where that could leave, and then fleeing to Christ to find your everything in Him. So begin today and honestly examine yourself and every dark corner of your life. Come to know your misery and come to marvel in the grace that's shown to you. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And rejoice in a gospel that bids us fly and gives us wings. Amen.